we're uh, kind of bare bones as far as technology. I don't have a remote mic, so go ahead and ask your questions and interact like you always do. I'll just repeat what you say into the mic, and then if the question is something that warrants a response, or maybe you just want to make a comment about the gospel and participate in that way, that's fine too. We'll get it on the tape, and uh, we say tape even though we don't use tape anymore, do we? Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gathered church as we can come and hear your word taught, encourage one another, and to worship you and be reinforced in the gospel and in the truths that you revealed for us in your word. Help us understand what you've said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this is it today. We've got a different situation. I'm flexible enough, as long as I got my notes, I can uh, proceed. Now, the last couple times I did Sunday school, we were in the book of Hebrews. And I've been doing some gleanings. I've taught verse by verse through Hebrews twice now in my life. And I'm telling you, I can't stay away from it. absolutely love Hebrews. I think the implications in Hebrews for Christians are many, and they're profound, and they're timely. Now, last time we were talking about the cleansing of the conscience. And so I want to pick up again on that theme, and then what we're going to do is, is look at what is acceptable worship to God. And it's a profound thing that we redeemed sinners who come to a holy and awesome God who's a consuming fire and be accepted and offer up acceptable worship. That's a fantastic thing. Don't sell it short. And that's what we want to look at. So let's go to the slide number two. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12. We may have covered this last week. I'm doing a little backup to get the context of verse 13. But the Messiah has appeared, high priest of the good things that have come. Now, some of your translations may say will come. I did follow the scholarly research and decided this was the best reading. Okay, the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. To truly appreciate the profundity of this, requires an understanding of the Old Testament background and what the issues were, excuse me, some of which we we explored several weeks ago, the last time I taught Sunday school. Remember the scapegoat and the blood that was brought in for the mercy seat? And so you have expiation, which in the Greek means cleansing, Catharsis is our English word, and propitiation, which is appeasing God's wrath against sin. The Day of Atonement had both of those. But the point that the author of Hebrews is making is that in the case of the Old Covenant, this had to be done every year, over and over and over again. And for that reason, he said it could not make the worshiper perfect. It also would not have to be repeated. So in regard to what we have in Christ, there's an important term that is found a number of times in Hebrews, and it's thematic, and that's, as you see there in green, once for all. Hapox, here it has a prefix, epopox, 
and it doesn't change the meaning. Some would say maybe it intensifies it. But once for all, that what that means, hapax, is once and never again. We don't have to have a system of sacrifices because it's been done by Christ once for all. His sacrifice was holy and perfect and acceptable to God and it was received by God. And therefore, once for all, this is what William Lane in his excellent commentary calls decisive purgation. That's a cool word. Don't forget it. Decisive purgation. Not over and over and over and over, and you're never sure where you're at. But once for all. And this was done when Christ died on the cross and bodily ascended into heaven and and so forth. So a Messiah appeared. He's the high priest. This is important. We don't have a human priesthood other than the priesthood of every believer, which I hope to get to this morning to show you that passage that teaches the priesthood of every believer. But Jesus is the high priest. And unlike the high priest under the old covenant, Jesus is accessible. He has the throne of grace where all believers can go. Being fully human and fully God, Jesus, unlike Mary, Jesus, who has the essential attributes of deity, can actually hear all of our prayers. A finite created being could not hear millions and millions and millions of prayers. So some of you came from a Roman Catholic background. Do you think Mary could actually comprehend all of this? Or some other dead saint? No, in fact, it's offensive, the idea that you would pray to a a created being, a fallen sinner, even a glorified one in heaven. But Jesus, who's fully human and fully God, is merciful because he suffered in all things as, as we do, yet without sin, who's compassionate, according to the teaching earlier in Hebrews, who has a throne of grace, and we see in Hebrews 4, 16, that we receive grace and help in, in, in timely need at that throne. So he's the high priest. The good things have come, and this is greater and more perfect. That is the heavenly one. That's emphasized in Hebrews. The most holy place is heavenly. He entered once for all. By his own blood, the blood of animals foreshadowed, foretold the need for a blood atonement. The sheep that were slaughtered had to be without blemish. But the Bible says that Christ is not without blemish, and he perfectly paid for sins once for all, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. William Lane says this, the continuity exists in that Christ, like the high priest, passed through the front compartment, talking about the earthly tabernacle, and entered the most holy place by means of blood in order to secure atonement. But the accent, says Lane, falls on a degree of discontinuity in the action of Christ. The sphere of his priestly ministry was not an earthly tabernacle. He passed through the greater, more perfect compartment to enter the heavenly sanctuary. The medium of his approach was not the blood of animals. He entered the presence of God by means of, of, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Everything about what Christ did, this is me talking now, was more perfect more decisive, more profound, more exciting. And this is what we have access to. This is what prayer is about. We go to the throne of grace. It means so much to me to think that Jesus is interceding for me. He ever lives to make intercession for us. If that doesn't comfort us, 
we don't know enough about Christ. Or maybe we don't know enough about our own need. But it should comfort us. It should encourage us. It should give us hope. If Jesus is praying for me, maybe I won't fail. He said to Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Do you suppose Peter was comforted? Well, at the moment, he wasn't so sure he needed it because he was still full of self-confidence. But later, he wept when he thought about the fact that he denied the Lord. But his faith didn't fail, and Peter wrote some books of the Bible. Now, I want to talk about the cleansed conscience. The sunadesis is the Greek word for conscience. Let's define that, and then I'll read the passage. This is what Lane says, and this I know agrees with the theological dictionary of the New Testament because I've looked it up there many times. But what is this conscience? Conscience, says Lane, sunadesis, is the human organ of the religious life embracing the whole person in relationship to God. It is the point at which a person confronts God's holiness. The ability of the defiled conscience to disqualify someone from serving God has been superseded by the power of the blood of Christ to cleanse the conscience from defilement. The purpose of this purgation, that's word, by the way, from Old Testament ministry and sacrifice, is that the community may be renewed in the worship of God. So there's a communal aspect to this. The cleansing of the individual conscience, which is this whole person relating to God and realizing that he or she is a sinner and defiled, is cleansed decisively by the blood of Jesus so that rather than cowering before God, afraid to even approach the throne of grace with our questions and our needs and our problems, we as those who are cleansed go, and it talks later about going boldly, to approach God boldly, which seems to be a contradiction. How can you boldly approach a holy God? Through the blood of Jesus. Amen. And so here is a fantastic answer to a lot of the questions that are being asked in psychological approaches to Christianity. When I was in seminary, the therapeutic model was front and center. Everything had to be about therapy. This material here, if you were going to study this and find it, you weren't going to... You probably had to do it on your own because they were always talking about therapy. Well, I feel guilty. In fact, they were blaming evangelicalism for why people feel guilty. <laughs> Literally. The person who came in to head up the entire marriage and family therapy department, which became huge, bigger than the whole rest of the seminary, I heard, as an eyewitness, before she was hired, Blaming evangelicalism for all the psychological problems of Christians. Why? Because we taught God's wrath against sin. And people grew up feeling guilty, and they had a bad father image because they couldn't relate to God as father because their earthly father wasn't so great. And so then you go off into this endless world of counseling. Yes, and I'm going to repeat this. I don't have a mic to give you. Is believe that the attack on the father in society, the fathers on society, now that fathers didn't come out, maybe it's appropriate. Okay. Uh, the question was whether this was related to the attack on fathers. I would say it was, at the very least, intimidating because they, they were creating this impossible scenario that unless you as a father... We're absolutely perfect so that when people see me, they see the Heavenly Father, and then maybe they'll be okay and they won't have psychological problems. And fathers end up cowering because they knew they couldn't live up to that. 
Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Can we say that? And I wasn't uh, claiming as we raise our kids that I'm the Father to you. No, I'm a, it's just what it says in Hebrews 12. We had fathers who disciplined us for a season as seemed right to them. That's good enough. We wish it was better as what it is. But Jesus reveals the Father, not some psychotherapist. And so there were some really bad teachings, really, really bad. How come I'm always right around where the bad teachings show up? Maybe I'm a magnet. Here's the answer, my beloved brothers and sisters. The answer isn't years and years of therapy. We asked this lady, well, how many years of therapy are we going to need to get over this? Oh, 60, she said. So they're wanting clients. You never escape from these therapists. On and on and on and on and on and on. And if anybody dared pray, our Father who art in heaven, oh no, a problem here. Now we got the Father and we don't want to introduce that idea. This was in a Baptist seminary. Dear ones, we have better. We have the blood of Jesus that cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And yes, the Father is a consuming fire. He's awesome in holiness. And if he shook the mountain, it says in Hebrews, we haven't come to a mountain that, that cannot be shaken. And so even Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling, but we have this, cleansed conscience to serve the living God. The self-sacrifice of Christ on Calvary qualified him to enter the heavenly sanctuary and to consummate his redemptive task in the presence of God. Why is that not enough? I got a better idea. Why is it not taught? It's no wonder people accept these man-made substitutes, because they never heard the truth. They've never heard what it does say. But it says that we have access to the throne of grace. Now, we can draw near. Now, here's another theme in Hebrews, okay? Once for all is a theme in Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament. Draw near is a very important idea in Hebrews. A couple different Greek words are used in Hebrews, to draw near. And if you look those words up in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, their technical terminology for the priest to be so cleansed by ritual cleansing that the priest was allowed to draw near. And what we find out in Hebrews, because that was only the priest and only under certain circumstances, that we, each one of us, and we aggregately as the church are qualified by God to draw near and not get wiped off the face of the earth for doing so. Isn't that exciting? Draw near. Ingus is one of the words and pros erkomai is another. And there's an irony here. I hope you see it. Therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter, now, if you know the Old Testament, if you read the book of Leviticus, if you've read what happened to the guys with the strange fire, Korah, Abihu, so if you just read the stories of the Old Testament, boldness would not characterize how one would want to draw near. Because you might just get wiped off the face of the earth. You may just go up in smoke. Or the earth may open up and swallow you like Korah. Gone. Drop right into hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. <laughs> Yikes. So all you got to, yeah, that's what we deserve. But all you have to do is read the Old Testament to see what was happened, what they were thinking about. You didn't just go out for a stroll one day and think, you know, 
I'm going to go barging into the holiest place. I'm going to go running right by the priests, right by the temple guards, right through the court of the Gentiles, right on in until I'm in the holy of holies, and then I'm going to see what's going on in here. Would you do that? Eric said he wouldn't. What about you, Brian? Would you do that? He might. He might. <laughs> what would happen if you did? You'd be dead. You'd go up and smoke. That's what they say. I don't. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but it makes sense, doesn't it? He talked about tying the rope on him to pull him out. So look at that word. I didn't highlight. I should have put a little box around it. We have boldness to enter. This should shock us. This should cause us to stand back and take notice. Boldness to enter. Parousia, the Greek word there. How can that be? Well, it's explained through a new and living way he's opened for us through the curtain. What happened when Jesus was dying on the cross? What happened to the curtain? It was torn in two. What did that signify? Access to the holy place. The author of Hebrews is bringing out implications and applications of redemption. So, therefore, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. True heart, the full assurance of faith, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. All terms from the Old Testament rituals of purification that as the priesthood of every believer, we are purified, we are cleansed, we are holy, we can enter and go into the presence of God by faith. William Lane says the boldness which believers in Christ have to enter the heavenly sanctuary through him is set in contrast to the restrictions which hedged, hedged about the privilege of symbolic entry into the presence of God in Israel's earthly sanctuary. In it, not all the people could exercise this privilege, but the high priest only as their representative, and even he could not exercise the privilege any time he chose, but at fixed times and under fixed circumstances. But those who have been cleansed within, consecrated and made perfect by the sacrifice of Christ, have received a free right of access into the holy presence, and our author urges his readers to avail themselves fully of this free right. William Lane and his commentary on Hebrews. We need to realize the awesomeness of the right or the privilege, the benefits of entering by prayer, which is defined for us in Hebrews 4.16, and the fact that our consciences are cleansed. Nobody, nobody, no religion, nothing besides biblical Christianity offers a cleansed conscience. Can't get it by works. You can't get it by joining a cult. I saw a couple Mormon missionaries in Aldi. They were all spiffy with their short sleeve white shirts and ties. And I thought, what a shame to waste your life serving a wicked, wicked system of religion that claims that doesn't even claim that God is God. He's a man who became a God. It's abusive to women. It's characterized by every form of wickedness but yet you got to go serve, 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 serve. It's really sad. It's amazing how much people will do for false religion. Biblical Christianity is offering us access to the throne of God, not through a human intermediary other than Christ himself, a cleansed conscience, purified bodies, maybe 
okay, Lutherans would see bodies washed in pure water. If you're Lutheran, you're quite sure that means baptism. Maybe it does. Maybe it's reminding them they were baptized. I don't have a problem with that. But then the implications of baptism go beyond the external cleansing to the cleansing of the heart. But at very least, it, it, it signifies that we can enter by faith. doesn't mean I don't believe in baptismal regeneration. Absolutely not. But I do believe that baptism is ordained by God. So, yes. You know, I'm looking at the full, and, but then I go with the pendulum to the word faith people who basically think that their assurance is so secure that they can tell God what to do and he has to abide by these principles. By their words. Yeah. Yeah, she said, she, uh, she was commenting, I'm repeating for the mic, about the full assurance of faith and how we, at some point, may not feel like we have that so well. But false teachers are offering false assurance. The, the word of faith people say, you say it, you have it. You have God-like power with your own words. That would be a bad thing to have. If you're going to have God-like power, you've got to have God-like wisdom. I don't think we have it. We'll speak into existence that which is evil. Uh, okay, the question was, why are the biggest heretics the most confident? They're taught that you have to be that way. Any sign of being halting about anything is seen as a sign of weakness. Okay, that's what I like about Luther, by the way. I continue to read Luther. He addressed your concern, Luann. He wanted all Christians to have objective assurance, and that's why he heightened the idea of baptism, because you could look back and say, I was baptized. So that gave you something concrete. He called it the external word. The Lord's Supper to Luther was the external word. It's the gospel visible. And then the external word is the taught word. And what Luther did not want was religious leaders pounding on the saints compromising the idea of the priesthood of every believer, dangling people over the pit, and always leaving them in a state of a lack of assurance. Luther had a section where he dealt with the one of small faith. Small faith or weak faith is valid faith. Lord, I believe, help though my unbelief. That's still faith. Jesus said to Peter, I'll pray for you that your faith doesn't fail. So the having full assurance is a great promise. And we gain that through the objective promises of God, not our internal feelings. Right now, I'm doing a lot of reading in preparation for my next article. And I realized I'd never read uh, John Piper's book, Desiring God. I started reading it 30 years ago and didn't care for it, so I laid it aside. So now I am reading it. There's a lot of good gospel in there, and I commend him for having the gospel. <clears throat> but here's my concern. I'm going to be a little Lutheran right now. How much I do or do not desire God is subjective. And if the entire nail that you're going to hang your hat on is desiring God, what if I don't feel like I have that? Then I lost the assurance of faith. I'm not sure I'm fit to draw near. And how do you quantify this? Does desire come with, with uh, graduations on a graduated cylinder? There's this much, and then there's this much, or this much, or this much. You don't know. Uh, do, do I desire God enough? Well, it wouldn't be hard to convince yourself you don't. I think it throws everything into the subjective realm, though it's true that the Psalms do teach that David desired God, and I do believe that Christians do desire God. But for every verse in the New Testament that talks about that, there's 10 verses that talk about the forensic or the legal or the judicial. So if you're going to go by the emphasis of Scripture itself, the book should be 
justified by God. Which, by the way, was his first book, which was really good. It was on Romans 9. Yes. To enter, um, you know, I don't have my Greek in front of me. Oh, I'm sorry, I, you had I didn't pull it out here, but uh, I'm concerned about drawing near. I know what that is when it shows up. But to enter, that's a good one to look up. I bet you find it. What I've noticed is a lot of this terminology you find in Septuagint in the Old Testament for the priest. And so in order for this all to make sense, we must teach the priesthood of every believer. Is that a concept that means something to us? I was just reading Luther. He has a huge section about the priesthood of every believer. Why? Because if that's true, then the Pope has nothing to say to you. You have as much right as the Pope to go before God. And if he doesn't have the gospel, he has no right. And Luther says the lowliest believer in a church can say to the Pope, be silent in the church because you're not preaching the gospel. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or to any other local leader. We don't have a right to proclaim anything beyond what's taught in Scripture. Do not go beyond what is written. Every single believer, no matter how high or lofty they may appear to us, or how lowly and needy they may appear, everyone is a king and priest to God, a royal priesthood who can offer acceptable worship, who can come to God and go to the throne of grace and have boldness to enter and full assurance. Dear brothers and sisters, I want to, in the name of God, offer you assurance that's given by Scripture. You've been beat out by false religious teachers long enough. One thing they don't have to offer is assurance. Do more, do more, do more, try harder, do more, try harder. And then you've got to keep that status because otherwise they may not serve the group. But we have freedom and we serve because it's a privilege to do so. Says Lane, the invitation to approach the throne of grace with confidence has already been issued in 416. Don't forget that. Now, corporately, let's talk about gathering together for worship. Now, here's one of the aspects of means of grace we don't want to miss. Some do. It doesn't help us to miss this. We need each other. For one thing, if you look at all the one another's in the New Testament, there's a lot of them. And I don't know how whatever gift I may have is going to contribute to somebody else if I don't have anything to do with anybody else. Me and my computer screen, that's enough fellowship. <laughs> well, I got a better one. Sit on there and blog and then tell everybody how miserable and wretched and worthless they are as Christians. That's helpful. Hebrews 10, 23 and 25 through 25. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let's stop right there. Earlier, before studies will start, we were talking about the promises of God. Faith needs an object, right? Faith isn't faith in faith. Faith isn't some romantic idea that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. <laughs> for, frankly, that's not very accurate. I'll tell you my own experience. For every drop of rain that falls, a weed grows. <laughs> Weeds love fertilizer. Weeds love rain. Weeds grow. The only, the best recourse is tell yourself they're flowers and be happy. Well, back to another topic this time of the year. No, that's just a romantic idea. And this is uh, strong in American history. You got Thoreau, the romantic, romantic transcendentalist. You sit on Walden Pond and imagine the 
how great everything is. There's, uh, I wrote an article critiquing Ann Boskamp's book. It's just more romanticism. Pan, God is in everything so we can have this romantic view of God. God is in this and God is in that. That's not what's being said here. The object of our faith is God and his promises. And we need to teach to the church the promises of God so they know what to believe. Or as Lued was mentioning, along comes false teachers telling us the promise of God is that we can have anything we say. And they actually say you get whatever you say, and if you say bad things, then it's no wonder you're all messed up. And so we need to hold on to the confession of our hope, which is expressed, it's an eschatological hope, expressed in the promises of God. And so holding fast without wavering, what does that mean? Not going to the right or to the left, but fixing our eyes on Jesus, fixing our eyes on the high priest who's gone before us into heaven, fixing our eyes of faith. I'm not talking about creative visualization or something like that, but our eyes of faith on the promises of God and knowing we have access to the throne of grace. What greater motivation to prayer is there? Sometimes you don't, you don't have to get a degree in theology to pray. Maybe you can't construct a sophisticated prayer. Sometimes you don't have time. Sometimes you're so under so much diress that you can't even think about anything sophisticated. I have a degree in theology, and I write theology, but I've been to the point and brink of utter despair, even of being alive. I know what it's like to go to bed in the evening and wonder if you'll be alive in the morning. One morning, I almost wasn't. That was the morning I got up and drove to the doctor and got lost on the way. My blood was at 4.3 on hemoglobin. And I was sitting there in his daze, and then the doctor said, Mr. DeWay, your wife's coming to take you to the hospital. But the weird thing was, that night when I went to bed, I had this idea, I might not wake up in the morning. And when you get in that state at times, God forbid that that would happen to any of you, maybe the most sophisticated theological prayer you can think of is, Dear Lord Jesus, help me. I prayed that. Dear Lord Jesus, help me. Maybe I'll be able to fall asleep. Maybe I will wake up in the morning. Maybe I won't leave my wife behind without a husband. Dear Lord Jesus, help me. And he did. He didn't say, well, Bob, if you can't think of something more sophisticated than that, then don't bother to pray. <laughs> Throw a little theology in there. <laughs> no, dear Lord Jesus, help me. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The sinner, literally, in, the, in Luke, if you look at that in the Greek, I, I don't want to wear you out with the Greek, but now with Logos software, I'm actually getting dangerous with this stuff. <laughs> that thing about the guy who prayed, be merciful to me, a sinner, it, it's, in the Greek it says, be propitious to me, the sinner. He wasn't just generically saying, yeah, I'm a human and humans are sinners. He wasn't just saying, be merciful. He's saying, be propitious. Here, and this is the word from Hillisteria in the mercy seat. Lord, show the mercy seat where the blood uh, uh, appeases your wrath to me, the sinner. I'm the sinner. I'm not just generically part of a bunch of sinners, which I am. I'm the sinner. That's what that guy prayed. He didn't have a theological degree, but he knew that. The other guy prays to himself. I'm glad I'm not like these other people, especially like this sinner. He agreed with the guy that he was the sinner who was better off. I'd say the guy who was the sinner. Peter. Can you expound on that? Has some yes, let's go to that. 
Okay, so we talked about the confession, uh, the questions about some habitually do. And then let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Let's talk about that. All right? What I have been seeing lately, teaching through Galatians, and I heard our Wednesday night on First uh, John, and, and I saw a passage in there, and it just struck me that I hadn't seen the significance of before, that according to Galatians, loving and bearing one another's burdens is the law of Christ. See, Christ is the lawgiver of the new covenant. He appointed apostles who speak for God and are legitimate lawgivers. Beyond Christ and his apostle, there's no lawgiver. We only go back to the law already given. And it says in there that the law of Christ is summarized by the idea of loving one another. Here it is again. Promote love and good works be concerned about one another. Then it says, not staying away from our worship meetings. What does that mean? Well, how exactly are you going to care for one another if there's no other, just me? In other words, if we don't actively fellowship together, we won't be in a position to do anything for one another. Well, I think there's things we can do, which we do over the Internet and whatever with prayer requests. But isn't it great to actually see the saints? I was Wednesday night, I came down here. I watched the fish smell off me and came to the prayer meeting. <laughs> and I was gratified by how many people were there. And I'm not saying you're a better Christian if you come on Wednesday night. I'm not saying that at all. This is totally free whether we come or not. But a lot of people did. And you know what I thought about it? How great it is just to see the saints. How exciting it is to see the saints. And to, to know that they're there for you and they care about you and they're not going to abandon you in your worst time. I want to thank you. Nobody here abandoned me. And... We didn't have any idea whether the Lord would bring me back to life and health, but in a large measure he has, so I thank you for not giving up on me. And so here we need not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging one another. There's that one another again, or each other. All the more as the day is drawing near. What is the day drawing near, do you think? The day of judgment, the eschatological day, the day when we got to give account for everything. Do you think we need one another? All the more as the day's coming. And I know even as a brand new Christian, I mentioned this in my last sermon, it's inexplicable by sociological analysis that me as a rock and roll 20-year-old, when I was converted, went to this little church full of people over 60, almost exclusively. <laughs> and I sang their music and liked it. And I'm not saying that I'm more pious because I like when the role is called up yonder, but I did. <laughs> And I saw how much those people loved the Lord and loved one another, and I wanted to be part of that. Don't you? Oh, yes. Uh, Eric asked that I relate this to Acts 2.42. It it says there they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Plural. Themselves as a group. Devoted there in the Greek is used in the later in the New Testament, for prayer, being devoted to prayer. So being devoted to the apostles' teaching is, a, in a sense, a prayerful approach to God as we encourage one another and learn the truth of the gospel. And it encourages me when others teach and I hear their strong commitment to the gospel. 
This last Acts 2.42, fellowship, koinonia, sharing a common life together. There's a lot of things that make us not together. We have different jobs and different family situations and what have you. But there's one thing that gives us common life, and that's the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. To prayer. This is talking about corporate prayer, where we pray for one another and go to the throne of grace, although we can do it as individuals. And then to breaking bread, which most scholars, and I agree with them, is a reference to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a corporate activity. These things may not seem very profound, but they're very important. I was talking to somebody the other day and reminding them of the very first Sunday school I did on Means of Grace. I talked about Naaman the leper. Remember Naaman the leper? He went to Elisha and didn't even see him and was told to go dip into Jordan. If God gives us a command and a promise... We should go do it, right? That's that simple. It's not, it's not way over on the other side of the sea that we should go there or down in the depths, according to Romans 10. The word is near us, even in our mouth. Let me quote a little lane here. The writer here succinctly recapitulates the emphasis on the utter reliability of God as set forth in 6, 17, and 18. The promise is absolutely certain because, quote, it's impossible for God to lie, 618. He will keep faith with the community. The factor of uncertainty lies exclusively with the community in their tendency to waver in their commitment to the gospel. It is the responsibility of the writer's friends to act on God's constancy by steadfastly holding on to their beliefs without wavering. Let me apply this again to Naaman the leper, although in his case it was individual, but it illustrates it. What if, remember Naaman was in a far country and he has leprosy. There's no cure for the leprosy. He has no recourse. But he found out there was a prophet of God in Israel, and he thought, why not? I'm going to go to Israel and see if the prophet of God could do me some good. So he goes. Now, what if Naaman just thought, oh, nuts to all this. It's too much problem. It's too much work. I think I'll just stay here. Would he still have his leprosy while he, until he died? Absolutely. God uses the means. And when he gets there, he's told to go dip into Jordan seven times, and then he's offended. We've got dirty, that's dirty water. We have better water where we are. And then his servant talked him some sense into him and said, well, if he would have come and waved his hands and said some great thing, would you have done that? Oh, yeah. Well, then why don't you go dip into Jordan? Humble yourself and come to God on his terms. And so he did, and he was cleansed. Yes. So if, if I'm not doing what God says, then I'm sinning, right? Is that, is that correct? Well, I believe it would be a sin to refuse to fellowship with other Christians. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And the other thing is there's an argument in Hebrews that if we make a habit out of this, we're in danger of apostasy. Okay, asceticism, monasticism, silence and solitude, all of those are man-made substitutes that aren't ordained in Scripture. This explains how we come, what terms, and what promises. And the practices are ordained by God. Now, what if Naaman, let's go back to Naaman. I use him because he's easy to understand. It's just one guy. And one prophet and one promise from God. Go dip to be cleansed. What if Naaman says, you know, this dipping in the Jordan, he kind of did say this. That's offensive to me. I'm a king. I deserve something better than that. I think I'll go into the silence and the solitude. 
Do you think he would have kept his leprosy? Yes. If God's given us the means, we need to come according to the means he's given us and believe his promises. And they're not grievous. Oh, uh, 1 John. I was looking at that, and it says, his commandments are not burdensome. And then it defines that. The command of God is to believe in the one the Father sent and to love one another, which is the law of Christ. Faith in God and the law of Christ. Caring for one another is an expression of obedience. Well, here's your answer. I had it in my notes. Caring for one another is an expression of obedience to the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2. The means of grace are corporate, and if we neglect the Christian assembly, not only do we neglect what we need, we neglect what others need that we have to share. Do you think you have anything to share? According to Romans 12, you do. In fact, it would be a sin to not use whatever gift the Lord's given us. How do you know what they are? You've got to go join Rick Warren's shape program. <laughs> oh, that's not it? No. You don't have to take Myers-Briggs. You don't have to take somebody's multifaceted test. Well, how do you find out what your gifts are? You show up. Well, what good does that do? Well, I don't know if you're Brian Beers, you show up and you always set up the chairs. And you always want to create fellowship. So Brian hungers for fellowship and he likes to serve in practical ways. I didn't, did you take Myers-Briggs? There's a whole training class. (laughs) (laughs) He took the training class. It doesn't require what people think it does. I know when I was in seminary, they had all that stuff. No, you show up and your gift comes to the surface because you're there. You'll love, you'll greet, you'll serve, whatever it is. But if you don't show up, neither will your gift. And there's an eschatological aspect to this because the day is drawing near. According to Lane, the writer regarded the desertion of the communal meetings is utterly serious. It threatened the corporate life of the congregation almost certainly. It was a prelude to apostasy on the part of those who were separating themselves from assembly. The neglect of worship and fellowship was symptomatic of a catastrophic failure to appreciate the significance of Christ's priestly ministry and the access to God it provided. Wow. Now let's talk about our confidence. You know, one of these times, I might actually finish the PowerPoint. I don't know. That Peter, I'm going to have to put Peter to the front end because I keep, maybe I'll do that for next Sunday. I never get to poor Peter. But this is so good. I love it. How could you not get excited about this? Don't throw away your confidence. What's that? Well, confidence is, uh, means boldness, okay? And parousia is the same word for boldly coming to the throne. Don't throw away your boldness. Don't start thinking, well, Jesus is kind of busy. I don't think he has time for me. I'll go to Mary instead. Have you ever heard that? I have. (laughs) Jesus bids all of us to come and to do so boldly. Don't throw away your confidence. We can start getting our eyes on ourselves. I think that's where the confidence goes away. I start contemplating self, and I don't like what I see. Am I the only one who's ever had that experience? I am the only one. Well, I'm telling you the truth. I'm the only one who ever had experience. It's really bad. If our confidence is grounded in self, it'll be really bad. That's why works is 
such a false religion. But if our confidence is grounded in the objective promises of God and the work of our high priest, Jesus Christ, there's a great reward in that. It says Lane, the prohibition to not throw away your parousia expresses in a negative form that which is expressed positively in Hebrews 3.6 in terms of holding fast parousia. Parousia is the hallmark of those who are members of God's household. We are so bold as to believe we can go directly to God through Jesus Christ and that he hears us. That is our firewall against the abuse of religious leaders. They would like to make hoops that we had to jump through to please them first before we can ever have any sense that we please God. I don't want that. I don't want to teach that. In a sense, the preacher should be making it such that he's not really needed other than his gift is like everybody has a gift and you should use it. But it's not the thing that gets us to God. It's Christ who does. The reward is eschatological, the will of God, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The will of God in Hebrews is that we come to the high priest in faith and believe the promises of God. Well, yeah, that stumbles people too. Well, I don't think God is going to hear me or do anything for me because I haven't perfectly done all of his will. But you have to look at this in confidence, or I mean in context, excuse me. If you look at the fact that the will of God is that we don't go back to the high priest. Remember, they were tempted to go back to temple Judaism. But yeah, but they have the bleeding of the sheep and the smells and the sacrifices and the music and the, and the pageantry and the glorious garb of the high priest and the beautiful temple. All of this stuff is so real and so tangible. And you're asking us to go to Jesus whom we cannot see into a tabernacle that we cannot see, to a throne that we cannot see, to find grace that we can't even be sure what that is. I'm going to throw away my confidence, go back to Judaism. There's the issue. What do people do today? They recreate the smells and bells of Judaism. Emergent says we want to worship God with all five physical senses. We're going to recreate the pageantry. We're going to have the vaulted ceilings and all the glorious stuff. And we're going to tell people, don't, you don't have to think about all this. Just show up and do what, you, what the religious leaders tell you. The will of God is that we come to Christ in faith and that we trust him alone. The promise is that he hears us, that our conscience is cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that when he comes again, he'll receive us to himself. He will come and he will not delay, and we'll be his at his return. Verses 38 and 39 go on to say, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in, but in him. But we are not those who shrink back to the destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. The issue is clear. Dear saints, I love you, and I say that with all sincerity. It's amazing people care, care about us. Sometimes we don't have much to offer, but the church kind of cares for each other, doesn't it? Because that's what we do. And I'm confident that you continue to care for one another. And in a couple of weeks, we'll start with Colossians, and it gets even more excited. Now, here's what I must do. Enough of this dra dangling you along. Next week, we start on slide seven. Let me give you a preview. Unshakable kingdom. 
Sacrifice of praise. What about worship? What about praising God? Aha, Peter, preacher of every believer. See that? There he is. There he is. We found him. <laughs> Remembering the words of the Lord. And then this one. What about, is God willing that any perish? What does it mean? How would you like to get into that controversy? You would? No, I, I, not with you, no. <laughs> well, I didn't say I had it all figured out. I was just like a bobblehead. I was just... <laughs> okay. Dear Lord, thank you for giving us these glorious promises. Help us to believe and to come boldly to the throne. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And we'll have an adventure to see where church is. We'll see what it's going to be.